0: We started taking a look at you know, my, my arrival into this field as a scientist kind of coincided at the time that people said, let's not just make more milk, let's try to improve fitness and functionality of, of the cow through genetic selection.
1: A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds in the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible the support and trust of innovative companies like Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. AB Vista helps dairy producers maximize their herd potential with feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function and overall animal health. From young calves to lactating dairy cows, AB Vista is here to combine industry leading products and optimal feed strategies to increase your ROI. All right, welcome to this
2: episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Gail Carpenter. I'm the State Dairy Extension Specialist for Iowa State University. And I'm joined today by Dr. Kent Weigel uh, from UW-Madison. Dr. Weigel is a professor and chair of the Department of Animal and Dairy Sciences at UW-Madison, where he holds a research extension and teaching appointment. Over the last 30 years, Dr. Weigel and his graduate students and postdocs have carried out translational research and impactful outreach that has improved the lives of dairy farmers and their cattle in Wisconsin, North America, and beyond, while generating more than 200 publications in leading peer-reviewed journals to date. Studies of novel genetic traits have included methods for analyzing health data from on-farm herd management software that led to the implementation of national genetic evaluations for common herd health disor- or common health disorders in. US. dairy cattle, as well as establishment of a genomic reference population for dry matter intake, residual feed t- intake, and its components, which led to implementation of national genetic evaluations for feed efficiency in. US dairy cattle. Studies of novel breeding strategies have included, application of genotype imputation methods to the design and implementation of low-density single nucleotide polymorphism arrays that facilitated low-cost genomic testing of more than 100,000 dairy calves per month, as well as analysis of founder contributions to inbreeding depression and use of new methods to measure inbreeding at the genome level. Lastly, studies of genome-enhanced and precision dairy management tools have included the use of machine learning algorithms lip chart analyses, and related tools to predict insemination outcomes and assess breeding strategies, prediction of whole genome risk for hypoketonemia, and prediction of daily dry matter intake from sensor and metabolite data. That is a mouthful. I'll be honest, as a nutritionist, um, maybe not quite as smart as a geneticist, I I understood most of that, I think. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I'm already regretting the bio that I sent you, Gail. That was really, really...
2: Uh, It sounds fascinating, though. So it sounds like a lot of big words for some really applied stuff, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe we can start by unpacking some of that if you want. Uh, So like most animal geneticists or dairy geneticists, right, we spent the better part of the last half of the last century, which, you know, I caught the very tail end of, right, improving things like milk production per cow, milk components, and then in the '90s, started getting into the health traits and longevity and those sort of things. And we were behind some of the other countries, in particular in Europe and Scandinavia, specifically in measuring and evaluating things like stillbirth, calving ease, longevity, mastitis, and so on, because we didn't have national veterinary recording programs and so on. But we started kind of modestly with longevity and somatic cell count as a proxy for mastitis and and that was good and then in the early 2000s got into female fertility and improved the calving ease evaluations started looking at stillbirths and those sorts of things which are economic and welfare issues right there are a lot of things that dairy farmers sort of take for granted right if i have holstein cattle let's say I'm going to have a percentage of calves that are going to be stillborn, and I just can't do anything about it, and I'm going to have a percentage of calves that I have to pull because that's just the way it is. Well, it doesn't really have to be that way, and we've made some pretty significant improvements there on, on those traits, and then we started taking a look at, you know, my my arrival into this field, as a scientist, kind of coincided at the time that people said, let's not just make more milk, let's try to improve fitness and functionality of of the cow through genetic selection. Heritabilities are low, which means big environmental effects. And we had to get a lot better at measuring some of these things, and they actually are under genetic control. So we did a lot of work, some of the early work here on using health event data from Dairy Comp or PCDAR, DHI+, Plus, whatever software, to select for cows with fewer health, early postpartum health problems, mastitis, metritis, DA, ketosis, and so on. And that research was done, you know, early 2000s. It got implemented, you know, 10, 12, 13 years later, which is often the case nationally. And, and so that was good. And we did some cross crossbreeding research at the same time. In part because crossbreeding was gaining popularity, and there was a lot of ideas about how this will be amazing. We'll get more milk. We'll get fewer problems of every kind, and so on. And so we got a little bit into that. I think results of that were um, probably as expected, right? You give up some milk, you gain some fitness, some fertility, as one would expect, and it maybe changed the way people looked at Holstein cattle and some of the things we thought were possible
2: yeah crossbreeding is actually the number two breed in iowa crossbred cows yep yep so doesn't mean they're any one particular cross but if you just put all the crossbreds in one group with each other they're the they are number two breed after holsteins
0: and what are the breeds or breed rotations that you're seeing the most of
2: Um, a little bit of everything, uh, honestly. So I see Holstein Jersey crosses, um, see some of the the pro cross coming in a little bit too. Some of that Montbelliard influence a little bit. Um, but I don't think, I don't think we're seeing any, any one particular, everybody's kind of got their own little, little tweak on it and they have their, their favorite cross that they like to play with. So, but yeah, if you, if you look at number of cows in Iowa, we're, we're, we got a pretty heavy crossbred population. So I don't know if that's unique to Iowa or if that's something that you're seeing nationwide, but. I think it's
0: different parts of the country. I don't know if it's nationwide, but certain areas, it's kind of more popular than others. And and some, you know, some overall trends toward it. I'm encouraged that we're now getting to the point where folks are being planful about it and having kind of long-term vision of what we want 10-15 10-15 years down the road with the herd. It was a little bit discouraging in the early years you'd go on a farm and they'd oh we bought semen from this breed and we created all these calves and you know they aren't even out of the watches yet and they already so I don't like those this is a failure. Like how do yeah. you know they're like six weeks old right? And yeah. <laughs> so you can't change your breeding plan that quickly right you have to be yeah maybe you can change your ration you know that's your area you could change. you shouldn't probably change it every six weeks you could you can't change your genetic program. But you know, by definition, that's a multi-generation thing, right?
2: Well, and I wonder how much the you kind of alluded to this a little bit. I'm not going to say this in most the most politically correct way I could probably. So um, I wonder how much the Holstein breed um, screwed themselves over, maybe a little bit. Um, or that's probably again probably not the most politically correct way to say that. But probably not with but- with, that, <laughs> with the with that emphasis on I know we gave up a lot on that repro side um, in when you were getting in, in the, in the nineties and there. And, um, and I've seen even my career has not been as long as yours. Um, but I've even seen since I've, you know, graduated college, some, some leaps and bounds in that area. So I think the, I think there's a swing back that we're seeing to more of those health and longevity, um, and fitness traits you call them. Um, yeah,
0: for sure. And if you don't like the health longevity fitness thing or that's sort of too fluffy for you then, you know, think of it in terms of income and expenses, right? You can maximize production and maximize income, but still, you know, expenses are real and those are not just feed, but labor, all the interventions you have to make, the veterinary costs, the culling and replacement costs and discarded milk, those things are are really the dead calves, all those things really add up, right? And And then there's the the sort of welfare and perception piece of it too that's important. And I think at the time that I was trained in grad school in the late 80s, early 90s, the attitude was, well, if it's you know 20 or 30 or 40 percent heritability, and we can get the data for free through DHI or breed association type programs or whatever, then it's worth selecting. And if the heritability is you know, 5% or 8% or 3%, well, we shouldn't worry about it. We'll let the nutritionists and physiologists, you know, develop uh, ways to solve those problems. And it's not our problem as geneticists. Well, and that's not really true, right? I mean, some of these things we could improve if we tried and, and now we're trying, right? And it actually works, right? So you Find even though the heritability, let's say, of female fertility is really low because there are huge environmental influences. And, you know, people like Milo Wiltbank and Rich Persley and others, you know, if Paul Fricky can do great things with ob-sync and RESYNC. We can also fix it genetically or, or at least contribute to fixing it. Uh, some fa- it makes
2: our job a lot easier on the reproduction and nutrition side if we're working with a strong genetic base.
0: Yeah, and, and I you know, for me kind of a come to Jesus moment, if you will, was we had actually been doing some work on male fertility analyzing the data and kind of as a byproduct you get female fertility analysis too. So not fertility of the semen, but fertility of the cow, right? And I thought, what the heck, I'll just look at the the list, and this was you know, twenty five years ago, right? And I saw, oh there's a bull with thousands, tens of thousands of daughters and hundreds and hundreds of sons in the breeding program. And it just got awful. He was like the worst bull in the breed. Now I'm going to say which one it is. Probably nobody remembers him anyway. But I thought, this is bad. Like, um, every farmer doesn't need to necessarily look at every one of these traits. How much ketosis does daughters of this bull have or, you know, every single trait that we offer, even feed efficiency now. But if you're like a sire analyst uh, for a breeding company, or you're one of the elite breeders that's flushing your, um, you know, best cows or heifers and making the next generation of breeding stock, you probably shouldn't do that. You should probably have the information to to know this is this animal is a disaster for this fitness or welfare trade and we should we should probably pick somebody else. And I think that's kind of where the role of a lot of those traits are because when you get 20. 30 different traits it gets to be like information overload nobody wants to look at all those for every bull they really don't have to but
2: you're kind of counting on the on the people producing those genetics to do that pre-screening for you basically right
0: that just shouldn't happen you shouldn't have hundreds of of sons at the breeding companies from bulls that you know are going to set the breed back by you know two or three preg you know points of preg rate single-handedly right that's
2: yeah yeah well, and we have so many more tools for this now than we did in the in the late second half of the last century, like you were saying, with genomics and everything, right? That we we can pick these bulls so much better. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the next
0: chapter, right? Is late uh, two like two thousand nine, two thousand ten, as geneticists, the world changed entirely, right? Because we had sequence of the of the cow and could start imagining at least being able to not rely on progeny testing and these long periods of creating daughters, waiting for them to grow up, see how they did, adjust, do it again, right? And we could do things directly based on the genome. And it was a lot of fun at the beginning. The The first couple of years was helping the breeding companies and so on understand how to use this information. They caught on very quickly because it's in their interest to do so. And they all have master's, PhD level geneticists too, so it was very easy and short learning curve, but could we take this to the masses and not have it be a technology like, say, embryo transfer that was always just limited to a small population percentage of the population? Could we sort of uh, make it for everybody and that was reducing the cost? So the stuff about genotype imputation was exactly that. How do you take this from a $250 an animal test to $30 or $40 an animal and the Technology was there or the the methods were there in humans when they're combining different DNA microarray data from different companies for medical purposes. And and I won't get too far into the details, but basically it's like a jigsaw puzzle, right? If somebody throws a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle on the table, like, you know, at home, my wife, I'll wait for her to, you know, to to do the first half of her, the first the then I can walk by and stick in pieces and make this look great. And once you know the the sequence or the markers of the older animals, the ET donor cows and the popular sires of sons, you can fill in the blanks for the calves very easily and you don't have to pay all the money. And all of a sudden we went from a a few thousand animals being tested to 100,000 calves a month. And then it gets really cool, right? And you can start using this for management decisions and stuff, and in our case for research it gets really cool because you can start looking at traits that you couldn't before, whether it's something related to calf health or specific diseases, or in our case feed efficiency, right, so feed efficiency research was done, a lot of it in the UK and Netherlands and places like that in the 80s and early 90s, and they just stopped because they said, yeah there are differences between animals but we physically and financially can't measure dry matter intake on every daughter of every bull every year because it would cost you know tens of millions of dollars a year and you just couldn't do it because you don't have the facilities and the labor right but if we can make these so-called reference populations of animals with feed efficiency feed intake data and genomic data and then use that to predict everybody else from the genome, it actually works at least reasonably well, right? So that's what we've been working on since about 2000. Can we talk
2: about that a little bit more? That's one of the so some of these traits I think have a lot bigger economic impact um, than we give them credit for. So I think feed saved is a huge one. The other one that I think you've been doing a little bit of work in is this idea of resilience. Um, how do you how do you measure these things, and and what what do you see the impact of of these traits being?
0: Yeah, so let's we'll talk about the feed efficiency and, and feed save first, and then we will say set resilience aside because that's kind of where we're going next, and we're still trying to figure that one out. So we got a federal grant. We uh, being U uh, W Madison, Iowa State, Michigan State, Florida are um, being the main ones, plus the USDA Ag Research Service, not the competitive grants, but the USDA researchers to start looking at this and. S- start measuring feed efficiency on a big number of cows and it's kind of hard like this is why nobody did it before because it takes a lot of labor and and stuff but you can do it at the research farms uh, like at Iowa State Kalen Gates and Gene State does it by way back we have uh, the instant Tech system from the yeah. Netherlands yeah.
2: they were doing it when I was an undergrad at MSU um, and now I now I still see it being done here at Iowa State so it's kind of fun that I get to feel like I've been
0: seeing it for a while so exactly yeah and so what we decided to do Mike Vandahar at Michigan State was the leader of this deal and of the grant right and so we said let's focus on mid lactation because you avoid the craziness of the weight loss and production and body weight changes in their first uh, weeks and then at the very end uh, you have the pregnancy effects and stuff so we focused on 50 to 200 days in milk as the time period and over time now we've kind of settled on a measurement protocol of needing at least six weeks of data where you have every day right the data and usually there's a week training period in advance of that depending on what system you have cows have to get used to the gates and stuff and so we are measuring about 325 cows a year at madison uh, the other universities collectively are doing probably another seven eight hundred so we had about a thousand cows a year maybe a little more to the database we've com- uh, collaborated some with the Canadians and other countries now too but we're trying to build this national database and there are about I think between six and seven thousand cows in there now that have genomic test data of their own and then they have at least six weeks of feed intake data and then of course along with that comes all the components of residual feed intake which i haven't talked about yet but it's the energy sinks. so milk energy secreted milk energy this is your nutrition right so this is easy stuff for you Um, the metabolic body weight so how much how much intake do you need to make milk how much intake do you need to maintain your body size if you weren't making milk and then how much do you need for body weight change so those are kind of the three components and we've improved efficiency over time just by making more milk but at then uh, we get into this sort of diminishing returns or multiples of maintenance that you can explain, I'm sure, better than I can. But at some point, you keep adding more milk and you get smaller and smaller marginal gains in efficiency and, and it almost plateaus out, right? And now we have to start measuring differences between individual cows and what they actually eat. And so residual feed intake takes a cohort of cows, which like in our case, we have 64 cows in our pen that we have the electronic bins. The cohort could be all 64 cows. If we're just feeding them the herd diet, if somebody is doing a research project like a Heather White, let's say, might have two diets, well, then we have two cohorts of 32 cows because it's everybody who's eating the same diet at the same time, right? And then which cows ate more than they needed, sort of in quotes, where needed is based on those energy sinks, and which cows ate less than they needed. and, And the less than they needed ones are are considered efficient, right? So negative negative residual feed intake. That gave a lot of people, I think, some heartburn initially. Residual feed intake in beef cattle was already established and quite common. And then if you get into pigs and chickens, it was more ratios of gain to feed or feed to gain, which measures up feed efficiency. But those animals have fairly simple job of just growing and gaining weight, whereas a milk Cow, lactating cow has to make milk, maintain or gain weight, uh, potentially, especially growing if you're still in first lactation, and then reproduce and all this other stuff because she has to come back next year. There's no, right? Slaughter She's very complicated. There. Yeah, and it's so it's harder, but it, it's encouraging also that we spend a fair amount of time looking at do the efficient or low RFI animals have more health problems. We said, you know, back at the beginning of this lactation, did, where you're measuring feed intake, did they have more postpartum health problems? Well, no, we didn't find that. Well, what about the beginning of the next lactation? Maybe they're in negative energy balance and you're selecting for that. No, they actually were okay. And, and there is real genetic variation that is just, in terms of efficiency, It's we don't know all the reasons for it. Some of the beef research would suggest that it has to do with how efficiently cows can sort of main, uh, add or break down body tissues. There's heat loss. There's activity. There's all sorts of different things. I think health and immune function is part of that. So the healthier cows are also uh, as good or more efficient. So uh, you're just not, I, I hate to sort of anthropomorphize here, or sort of co-mingle animals and humans, right? But, you know, you're not really efficient when you're sick in, in, in any way. Cows are not efficient.
2: If you have to support that immune system, you're not going to be supporting malproduction. Right, exactly. So that's been
0: a lot of fun. So we collected data for six or seven years uh, on that project from USDA funding. And we got some funding from Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding, Foundation for Food and Ag Research. And then in, in 2020, we finally said, okay, I think we have enough. And we worked with Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding, which is the group that does genetic evaluation of dairy cattle. And they released finally national genetic evaluations for residual feed intake. And then one of the side benefits we got were better estimates of the cost of body size, because a lot of that data in the NRC was quite old. Now we got thousands and thousands of animals with body weight data and feed intake data. So we got newer estimates. And it turns out it costs a little bit more to maintain big cows than we thought it did. So that was also part of it. And they put those two pieces together, you get feed saved. And you know, the, the breeding values that are available for bulls and heifers and, and cows. The reliabilities aren't as high as we'd like. You know, we're used to having 80, 70, 80 percent reliability for traits like milk production. They're measured on millions of animals. Here you're talking, you know, 30, 40 percent reliability for traits that are only measured on thousands of animals. But it's a whole lot better than nothing. Right. And, and we keep adding. Gets you
2: a starting point. Is that something we're going to be able to measure at some point in our, our minor breeds like jerseys? I don't want to call them minor, but you know there's they're less common than Holsteins.
0: Yeah, numerically smaller breeds, I guess. <laughs> right,
2: to yep. be politically
0: correct. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know, honestly. I there's a desire to do that. I think that there are not enough research herds out there that we have big research herds of jerseys. We don't have jerseys in our research herd at Madison. We used to. Now we moved over to Dairy Forage, which is a USDA farm. In part because if you have two breeds on the research farm, as you know, and you start designing experiments and you start saying I need uh, second and third lactation cows and they have to be this many days in milk and so on, and pretty soon you just run out of cows, right? So having two breeds makes you run out more than twice as fast, actually. I was gonna say twice as fast, but it's even worse than that.
1: Right. As
0: <laughs> So, but I think there are other ways, I think indicator traits, I'll talk about some of those maybe in a minute, some proxies. I think honestly in jerseys, and I've talked a little bit with the folks at the association about this, that jerseys are unique in a sense that there aren't that many sire families, you know, it's sort of a small breed, right? Pretty aggressive in terms of genetic selection. And it's, they're overrepresented in large herds. So you could actually imagine uh, working with some commercial herds where you have the top Ten bulls, and you know, on your farm you have fifty daughters of bulls one, three, six, seven, and eight, and I have one, two, nine, and ten, or whatever, right? And you've got you could actually do pen-based work. You could have a pen of two-year-olds from this sire and that sire, and that would be actually really accurate data. I think you could do it on pen-based.
2: Well, that's how the beef folks got there. They they got pen data, right? to get their residual feed intake
0: yeah there's just so many you know these herds with now thousands or tens of thousands of jerseys
2: yeah yeah not like the 30 jerseys that we have at our iowa state herd
0: (laughs) yeah i mean measuring it individually is hard there are some folks trying to do on commercial or semi-commercial herds or like partnerships or whatever right measuring individual intakes but you have to have not only the equipment you have to have in our, like in our case, you don't buy the Insyntech bins and get them installed and then magic data shows up every day. You have to have people watching every day making sure that cows aren't stealing or throwing feed or you know you have a power outage and now the data aren't, you can't use today or you can never let the bins get empty, right? Because you can't get tailing gates yeah. like we have one cow per, per gate. You can never let the bin go empty because then now you don't have residual feed intake because an ad-lib feeding anymore right so there's just a lot of ongoing maintenance and i just don't see commercial farms being able to manage that or or being incentivized enough to manage that it's just i don't see it but you know there are some proxies there's a lot of work in in denmark and kind of started it now other people are doing it looking at can we use computer vision or videos right to look depth of the feed pile. So the feed pile in front of the cow is shrinking, shrinking, and then she leaves. And then how big was it? And then the next cow comes in and it shrinks a little more and you can kind of measure intake. I'm skeptical how well you can do that when like they're just at a a rail or that, you know, they're all sort of sharing the feed pile, right? It's probably a little easier if there are dividers, which is not common, of course.
2: Well, and and I don't, I would imagine you'd have to do, and you're, you're, more in tune with some of this research than I am, but, but different diets are going to have different densities, right? So just because you might have a diet that's fluffier, so to speak, and be a little taller. So it's probably something you have to calibrate to that farm's diet, I would expect, or?
0: Yeah, sorting, yeah. Right? sorting is going to come into play for sure. Oh yeah. right. And there's, and then one of the folks, Joao Doria here on our faculty has been looking at, can you augment that with Uh, Again, with the cameras, the videos, of how much of time is the nose touching the feed pile, You know, nose contact with feed, which is kind of of flipping it around, right, instead of feed disappearance. And then you have the wearable sensors, you know, the sensors to measure rumination, and potentially you can imagine that. You you have certainly the sensors to tell how much time she's at the bunk, right? Versus flying down and, and I think some of those data will help, but it's going to still have to be a core of real feed efficiency data where we actually measure the intakes so yeah, so that's kind of where we're going and, and then there's the feeding behavior part, which is cool, so one of the things we've found and and others have found this previously beef cattle with the instantex system, we get every meal in the the timing and the quantity you don't get that with Kalen gates, which is just a daily thing but the cows that eat faster you know, tend to have poorer residual feed intake, right? And the cows that eat a little slower um, are, are a little more efficient in a, in a way.
2: Well, are cows that eat slower also probably sorting? It's because sorting behavior is associated with slower slower eating speed too, right? So could it possibly...
0: That's actually a really good point. Could they
2: be just picking out the, yeah, there you go. <laughs> they could be picking out the starchy and the higher, the goodies, right? And leaving the stuff behind that's a little less energy dense.
0: Yeah, we should probably do a study on that. I think you're, I think you're onto something. Because, yeah, there you go. You know, there's, um, again, you don't want to sort of equate animals and humans, but I'm going to do it again, right? People would say, oh, you know, graze throughout the day. Don't, you know, just twice a day eat a giant beast and you're, Better off. I don't know if that's true, but there seems to be some relationship, yeah. right? You yeah. Know, and, big and then we, we're doing some behavioral, so we can measure that kind of behavior electronically. And then we have a student who's doing a cool project. Uh, place, what's her name? And, and we call it Hunger Games, <laughs> but it's changing the stocking yeah. density. So one to one. So you basically lock the cows away from the feed, then you release them to the bunk either at a one to one density or two-to-one, four-to-one, or eight-to-one and try to identify the more aggressive cows. And then you can, look, or look at things like latency from the time you, you know, open the gates to who gets to eat first. And there's relationships with with uh, lactation number there, right? The If you have only first lactation cows together or only older cows together, the dynamic is a little more stable. If you mix the two, there's there are more competitive interactions. And then when the cow does get in the her turn, she eats really fast because she doesn't know how long she'll get to stay before she gets you know, knocked out by another cow. And, and all those things are kind of cool.
2: And those really, all of those interactions are just exacerbated once you get on farm, right? Especially if you've got a farm that's, most farms are going to be over 100% stocking density on their lactating cows. And so I think that kind of accelerates all of that behavior stuff.
0: Yeah. So, you know, our, our thing right now in feed efficiency is to keep increasing the reference population size, which is great, and then do this sort of add-on research with cameras and, you know, the video cameras, the all the wearable sensors, the thermal cameras, right, Diane uh, Spurlock, when she was still at Iowa State, we got the heat loss with thermal cameras and try and understand it a little better and maybe find some proxies that'll help us measure on commercial farms. And then now expanding to methane because people care about that too, and, and it's, you going to measure methane, it's probably good to measure it on the same cows where you're already measuring intake, because then you can disentangle what's actually happening, right? And so we're starting to do some green feed measurements. Um, I think James is going to start doing some at Iowa State and others, too, to look at the methane production. You can do that in a couple ways, and you may know more about this than I do, but like the green feed system you can actually get methane production, which is really nice where the cows go and get some pellets and do it you know, several times a day. Or you can have the sniffers, so-called sniffers in the robot systems and the, the box robots. And those are really efficient because you can get a lot of cows really quickly, get a lot of methane data, but all you get is kind of methane to CO2 ratio and then you have to predict how much CO2 she should have had, and from body weight and from milk production, then predict how much methane she should have had. And and you could kind of rank the animals, but you're a few a few steps out on the limb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's probably good supplemental data, but maybe not uh, the best thing in terms of the main data source. I think we need green yeah. feed for that. Yeah. Oh, the methane, yeah. So that's kind of where we want to go next is try to establish a, a reference population for that and, and learn more about how to do it. and there are a few aspects to it. There's the genetic piece, which of course is interesting to me. There's the feed uh, or ration composition formulation part that's probably more interesting to you. You can do things like uh, you know with fiber or with feed additives mm-hmm. or things to change methane production. Some of those are at least as I understand, financially feasible, some are not. I mean, I saw somewhere that the that incorporating the seaweed, dried seaweed into dairy cow rations would cost like 25 bucks per cow per day. Mm-hmm. That's not too useful, right? Not right now, um, no. <laughs> and then it's interesting to me that as a geneticist, like how far can you push this? Cows don't produce nothing just for the hell of it, right, I assume. Uh, So if you reduce it 20% or whatever, I could kind of see, well, that might be a good thing. If you reduce it by 80%, what happens to the cow? Like, maybe something bad. I don't know. Like health-wise, who knows? And then, of course, there's the rumen micro part of it uh, because those little buggers are the ones that are making it, right? So you have to get the rumen microbiologist involved. So it's really cool stuff, I think, but we're kind of at the front edge of the learning there.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be a while before we have it all figured out.
0: Oh, for sure, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, resilience is an area that we're trying to get into. There are others. Uh, Luis Brito at uh, Purdue is doing some stuff. There was a, a really nice thesis from Bogdan, a PhD student uh, who just finished there, and looked at that. And, and it has to do with consistency of performance. So, I mean, resilience broadly can cover a whole bunch of things you know longevity health all that sort of stuff but if you think about it sort of specifically or mathematically I guess right it's can we identify those cows that just show up every day and make whatever 140 pounds of milk um, day after day no matter if it's hot or cold or windy or raining or you know if the rat if the Feed quality is great, or the feed yeah, not quite as great today. And there's some evidence that there is there are differences in this, right? And certainly, there's heat stress data from a lot of species that show that certain families have a different point of onset of heat stress and different loss in performance as as the heat gets worse. Or there's some data in pigs and chickens where the animals with really consistent daily intakes had fewer health problems, even when challenged with diseases, that kind of stuff, they were more resistant to disease. So you want animals that are, have consistent performance, and then if they do have a problem, they recover quickly and don't just tank, right? And, and we even saw in some a few of our feed efficiency trials where we switched silo bags and the feed quality wasn't very good. Uh, you know, of the 64 cows, maybe 30 or 40 of them would drop in, in intake. And some of the others, no problem, they just keep going. And so what yeah. is happening there? And I think it's really kind of cool to try and understand what's happening there.
2: Yeah, I think that that's something I've been kind of watching a little bit. I think there's a lot of potential in that space. Um, and I think it ties in with just you know overall farm efficiency. And and when we talk about emissions reductions, I think a lot of times, I at least I hope, as we're breeding for these cows who have more longevity Um, they're more efficient. They're less likely to have problems as we're breeding for more low problem cows. I think we're breeding for cows that are more sustainable, um, because you don't have to replace them as often. And so you have to raise fewer replacements. And I think as you look at the whole farm system, some of these, some of these traits, like, even though they're not maybe as, as sexy as, as, methane reduction, but if you're looking at things like feed saved or resilience. I suspect that over time you're just looking at at a more sustainable model of a cow, but.
0: Yeah, and it it has implications on replacement costs and bettering costs, but also on labor, right? Because every time you touch the animal, there's a cost, right? a student some years ago, when we were looking at some of the dairy comp health data and trying to sort of resolve all the creative ways farmers could record mastitis or DA or other things, um, various abbreviation stuff. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things. Yeah, Yeah, he said, well, how about I just count the events and just call it good, right? And it actually worked. If you just counted how many events each cow had during the lactation, like how many times did somebody touch this cow or have to do something, you kind of got about the same results, Interesting, yeah. And you hear that from farmers. They're like, oh, you you know, they'll they'll have uh, this cow that made 300,000 pounds of milk, and they're like, which cow? I never heard of her.
2: Yeah, you know? yeah. Because
0: she's never been to the hospital pan and never...
2: Right. You didn't have to breed her over and over again. You didn't have to, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I
0: think there's room to, to do some stuff there. It gets it gets a little mind-bending uh, when you... Like, we started talking with some of our nutrition folks here about, like, how geneticists, how we interpret that and and, say, resilience of feed intake, and then they start asking, you know, mean questions like... Well, maybe uh, isn't it good if a cow adjusts her intake because the feed was off, so she adjusts and compensates because, you know, now she's sort of managing her body. I'm like, oh, boy, this is harder <laughs> than I thought. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we do have to kind of, like, they're arguing, well, a cow shouldn't just eat exactly the same amount every day. A cow should, you know, kind of adjust on the fly. Yeah, be,
2: be smarter about what they're yeah, eating. Right?
0: Yeah. So, uh, oh, boy, okay, I guess we'll <laughs>
2: Well, I want to I want to switch gears a little bit here um something that that came out while we were emailing before we um before our conversation today uh you're pretty involved well obviously you're the chair of your department so you're pretty involved on on a lot of different aspects of of what's going on with that um yeah, it's, it's animal the and dairy science now right uh at uw so um what are you What are you seeing with the with the students that you that you're running through your department, and and what do you think that means for the industry in the long term?
0: Yeah, I mean the demographics are changing, right? As you know, I often say that you know here in Wisconsin, at the time when I decided to go to college, there were thirty thousand farms and five kids apiece, and now there are what six thousand farms with two point two kids apiece or something. So. The pool of farm kids has shrunk dramatically, and even some of the so-called farm kids now don't actually, didn't actually grow up on the farm. Right. Their, their parents owned it, but they live in town and or down the road, and and it's all managed by um, permanent labor, often Hispanic labor mm-hmm. or whatever. And they haven't really spent like they don't know how to do this stuff. Yeah, we did when you grew up on a farm, right? Um, which is fine right but it's just a different dynamic and then we get the you know, same here as iowa state or anywhere else the huge number of students with animal interests that sort of start with volunteering at a, a vet clinic or animal shelter or you know walking dogs or whatever and, and not necessarily interested in agriculture but they're interested in the animals and vet school of course right so um yeah, how do we sort of adjust our programs that way? And and it's really an interesting problem. So we're, and also the interests of the the so-called farm kids have changed too because it's not just about managing cows anymore or pigs or chickens or beef cattle or whatever, but managing people and, and money. Yeah, right? so yeah exactly. To our farm farms, especially larger farms, Still go to college, but they don't want to major in dairy science. Let's say they might want to major in business or ag business or something. So it's really interesting um, recruiting area or, or dynamic. And how do we get non-farm kids interested in jobs in food and agriculture? Because there are a lot of them,
2: right? Yeah, I I don't know about you. If I had so I coach our dairy challenge team here, so I have to think a lot about how teams fit together. Um, And if I was gonna put together a perfect team, I'd have a mix of both of both students. I obviously the kids who come from a dairy are gonna have a lot of benefits. They really understand the industry, they live and breed the industry, they they understand a lot of the ins and outs that you can't necessarily get across in all of all of your classes. But these kids that don't come from a farm, they ask so many good questions, right? They're always thinking, they're always thinking outside the box. Um, they're they're questioning a lot of things. And I think there's a lot of value in just that questioning, right? And just, well, why have we always done it this way? Um, they just bring in a really diverse skill set. And and to me, it just works together really well when you get a combination of both types of students. I don't know if that's what you've no, seen I too. I think
0: you're right. No, I, I agree. And and I think allowing them to special specialize or follow their interests is really important. So one of the things I mentioned when we communicated by email a few weeks ago is that as we look to what our majors look like, there's this bias that in order to be an animal scientist or dairy scientist, you got to take nutrition, <laughs> physiology, genetics and management. And then if you take all that, then well, maybe if there's any time extra, you could Take an elective like animal welfare or digital agriculture or something like that, right? But first, you got to get your animal scientist card. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think that's a sustainable plan going forward. I think we shouldn't. If a kid comes in or a student comes in, and we've had, you know, several recently who want a double major in computer science and animal science or dairy science, that's awesome, right? There's there's some really good jobs out there for that, and and we shouldn't make them spend all their time in, you know one physiology or nutrition class after another, that's not their interest, right? And if another student's interested in animal welfare and doesn't care about genetics, okay, that's fine. Like, you can be an animal welfare expert because you're gonna work as part of a team anyway when you get to some company, right? They aren't gonna sit there and go, you have to answer every question on every topic. You know, if you can't answer the one on nutrition, if you can't balance the ration, I'm gonna call your university.
2: Right, I'm gonna turn you back in, yeah. And there's so much to learn now, right? There's so much, like when you were in school, or even when I was in school, um, like the industry is just growing so fast, and the the amount that we understand is growing so fast. Um, and I think a lot of times, um, what we're trying to accomplish with our students is not necessarily trying to download all the all the possible information that we can into their brains, but what we're trying to accomplish is creating those students who know how to go out. And find that information for themselves, and have those critical thinking skills and those soft skills. And you don't always accomplish that in like a physiology class or a, or a genetics class or even a nutrition class. Um, you know, just learning the information isn't always enough to give those people, give those students, the skills that they're going to need when they when they graduate. So.
0: No, and they don't love it when we you know try to forcibly download our brains onto them. Yep. <laughs> Disciplines. If they don't care about it, then you know, at some point, they're going to say, "Wow, this isn't for me because I don't want to go through three semesters of this topic that I hate." Right? In order to get a degree.
2: Yeah, it's a changing. If we consider our students to be our um, our clients, it's a it's a changing clientele that we're working with for sure.
0: Yeah. No. It's it's really a lot of fun. And, you know, and and it's fun seeing the new ideas they bring, and and you know, we don't have. At some universities, they have the the big equine programs and and uh, you know get a lot of students who are interested in horses or big companion animal cor- um, programs. We don't really have that at this point, but we do get kids with those interests and not farm animals. And then you know I sort of jokingly refer to sheep as the gateway drug yeah. right? because because <laughs> they never they only worked with cats and dogs and like, sheep really they're so cute, right? So now they get on a sheep. Undergrad research project with sheep, and the next thing you know, they're they're doing a cattle project, and you know, off they go, right? But, yeah, they get the, you know, it's a big jump to go from volunteering at a shelter to, you know, uh, collecting blood sample from a cow that's ten times your size. Or,
2: well, that's how I, I we talked about the Jerseys earlier. From a research perspective, we have a few of those here, um, and from a teaching perspective, I think that really helps. Um, because they're, they're smaller and they're cuter and they've got those big brown eyes and they're also aggressively friendly. <laughs> yes, um, they are, yes, they are. and so you take a, you take a kid from Chicago and put them in a pen with a bunch of jerseys and they're just the friendliest thing. And they just, they eat that up. But so that's kind of our great way, jug.
0: <laughs> yeah. Calves are good. Half projects are good too, Right. For that. Um, you know, so you start with a lamb and then a calf. And- yep.
2: Yep, and next thing we know, we got them. But <laughs> but I think you're exactly right. If we're looking, I mean, we kind of view see this trend. But there's fewer and fewer dairy farms, right? And um and more jobs in the dairy industry. So um I think we do have an obligation to the industry to be able to to make these professionals um that are going to go out and fill those roles. But there's fewer farms out there that are going to be producing, for lack of a better word, these dairy kids. So
0: yeah, um, you know there are other trends, and and some are probably well beyond the scope of today's conversation. That mm-hmm. The gender trends uh, didn't get didn't get more right. even with COVID, right? Because now there's even more ways for young guys to go, you know, 18 year old males to mm-hmm. go make a bunch of money really quick, right? Driving truck or working instruction or things like that, and so even Fewer incentives to leave and go to college and uh, spend or borrow a whole bunch of money to do that, right? So, so we see a, even an increase in the, the gender bias uh, toward women, and um, you know, some of those jobs are really, really good when you're 20. They're less good when you're, you know, 45 and, and yeah. disability or something, or you know, right on wheelbarrows of concrete around for 20 years,
2: right? Yeah, that'll that'll wear on you after a while. It is time to our famous dream.
1: The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize room and function. Excellent by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia, its uncomplicated excellence.
2: Well, we're coming out at a, at about an hour, so before we before we let you go, um, I'm gonna ask. There's three questions that we ask of every guest, so I'm gonna go ahead and shoot those at you real quick to to wrap up our discussion today. Um, our first one is, what is your favorite dairy related book or resource?
0: Yeah, I'm gonna geek out here as a geneticist, and so we, I jokingly say, you know, NRC is the Bible for dairy nutritionists. Well. For geneticists, we have council, like Council on Dairy Cattle Breeding. Uh, previously, it was USDA Animal Improvement Programs Lab, which is like the the mecca for all information you want to know about how genetic evaluations are done for all the traits, right? So, if you want to know how feed efficiency works, you go there and click, 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 and it's explained, right? And or any of the other traits. And maybe that's not where a normal person uh, would want to be, but for a geneticist or genetic student, it's kind of the one-stop shop for everything you need to know at least about um, in the united states how we do that genetic selection for dairy cow right um, so that's probably where i would go i don't expect anyone else would be interested in going
2: <laughs> we might have some genetics nerds listening i'm not actually sure <laughs> uh so what is your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture
0: um you know i i I thought about this one since you mentioned it before. I th- I live about forty-five minutes, well, about twenty twenty-five miles, which is forty forty-five minutes commuting. So I need to entertain myself, and so I like I do audiobooks, of course, but I really enjoy podcasts too. And and one of them that is totally unrelated to my field, I just find it is oh, called Oh, I this love American that one. Life. Yes, it, it's uh, NPR actually makes it or whatever. Right. This comes out of Chicago, but it's just these random stories about things you don't think about, right? It, it's about people in situations. They particularly focus on people, you know, like put in situations of what do they do and how did it work out? And that's probably a really awful explanation. You could probably explain it better.
2: It's a, I was a this American life listener pre podcasts. It's a, when it, when it was just NPR, they did a really, you probably heard it, um, but they did a really good episode in, I think it was, it was either last year or the year before, but it was about these, um, like the, the decrease in standardized tests. Um, and so they, uh, and, and the new group of college students coming in and it's, I can't, I have recommended it to a bunch of people, but I can never remember the title, um,
0: Yeah, I haven't, I don't recall that one, but yeah, a lot of them are sort of, some of them are education related. There was one that I listened to recently, which I think was a rebroadcast from some years earlier about in, um, I guess it was in New York or Boston or somewhere, one of the cities where they do these sort of exchange programs, take the kids from the poorest public school and take them over to the richest private school for the day and then come back, you know, some years later and ask them about that. and like where the teachers thought they were doing each group of kids a favor. And yep. Not really. Yeah, no, yeah. It really didn't, no, I
2: think I remember that episode that way, too. Um, yeah. They do dabble a lot on the education side and I, I get a lot of education insights out of that one.
0: Um, yeah. So that's that, that one I really in, enjoy probably um, among, you know, there are others that are cool that are science related stuff, but that one just makes you, makes you think about stuff that you would never yeah. think about otherwise. Just like how I and I maybe it's because um, you know like sociology and psychology stuff kind of fasc, fascinates me because it's so different from what I do.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's good I think to get out of our silos every once in a while and talk to even within fields talk between geneticists and nutritionists and I think once you start kind of tearing down some of those silos we get a lot of insight from from other folks. Yeah. Uh, so the last question I have for you is, in your opinion, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are not?
0: Yeah, I I think if I had to just pick one thing, it's it's the lifelong learning part of it. It's It's incredible the amount of stuff that a dairy farmer, let's just restrict it to dairy farmers for the moment, mm-hmm. has to know, right? From from nutrition to genetics, the things we've talked about, the card-carrying animal science type stuff, um, environmental laws and regulations, immigration, uh, human resource, um, everything mechanical, financial. um, I mean, it's incredible, right? And you can't know how to do everything, but I think those who are willing to you know put themselves out there and, and try to keep learning i think is it's really critical or you know obviously you have to hire good people and be able to manage them not be a jerk and you know employees and all those sorts of things right but and then probably i'm biased also as a professor right to, toward the learning piece but i think that's where you know the further you get away from well this is how dad did it so therefore the I do it, and I really don't have any idea why. But that's—I'll just keep doing it because I you know that that strategy just doesn't work. It's not uh, flexible enough or resilient enough, or whatever, to adapt to how how environment around you has changed. Even though you know you might think, well, you know, we still farm the same way. Well, no, everything else has changed, so you have to too. Right? And it doesn't—and it doesn't mean be the first one to. To go grab every technology, right? Because sometimes that's not so fun, right? There was a producer uh, so some years ago at extension meeting. I'm totally digressing here, right? But Rick Grummer, who was, used to be on our faculty, was doing this um, shortened or no dry period research. This farmer was asking me about it. He's like, "Oh, wow! I'm really, uh, you know, thinking about going with no dry period on my cows, but I'm a little worried because I have a, you know, huge problem with twinning and managing twins and." I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, like um, you're having difficulty with your transition. And you want to get rid of the period <laughs> twins and all that. And now you want to take away the dry period. because um, you saw one presentation that said this might work. Uh, no, yeah. no, like, don't just wait for some more yeah. like wait a few years. Uh, you don't need to yeah. be at the bleeding edge of, of it, right? Yeah. Anyway, you get the
2: point. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation uh, today, um, this morning, this afternoon. I don't know when people are going to be listening to this, so, uh, uh, but, but I've enjoyed having a chance to to pick your brain a little bit. Um, is there anywhere if people want to find more information about uh, your research or your extension program, stuff that you're working on? Is there somewhere where they can where they can find more info?
0: Yeah, you could just go to our departmental website. It needs to be there, so it's just. Um, Andy Sci, AndySci at WISC.edu. the, at the department. Pretty, most of us yeah. academics are pretty easy to find.
2: We're Googleable, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, Ken, it was great to talk to you today. Um, really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I enjoyed our conversation.